Welcome to Creatives Do Money. Each week we explore the topics of everyday money management, solo small business ownership, and how we're fueling our creative futures. I'm your host, Eowyn Levine, money coach, personal finance nerd, long-time self-employed massage therapist, and watermelon enthusiast. And I'm on a mission to help you build the lasting financial stability that frees you up to do your creative work without hustling anxiously for the next dollar. I'm truly honored to introduce today's guest to you. I have been part of her community for going on a year now and just love everything she does. So I'm really excited that she's here. Nicole Antoinette creates resources and gatherings for folks who crave honest conversations, both with themselves and with others. She's a writer, recovering self-help junkie, retreat and mastermind group facilitator, and the host of the Real Talk Radio podcast. And over time, Nicole has crafted a business that supports her and helps her to enact her values and to create a world she wants to see on a tiny microcosm level, as she puts it. In addition to being a super talented writer, Nicole is also very open about money and she actively talks about it with her guests on her long-running podcast. She shares a detailed monthly business and money report each month, which I love to dive into because she's very honest and open. She's really smart and structured about how she manages her money, and she shares it in a really helpful and an inspiring way. Yeah, so I'm just really happy to share this conversation with Nicole. She takes us into many parts of her financial and business journey, not least the fact that she paid off $50,000 in student loans by the time she was 27 and not while making a ton of money. Oof. Okay, let's dive in without further preamble and get into the conversation. I'm so glad you're here, Nicole, and welcome. Thank you. I feel very delighted to get to spend some time with you. Ah, so good. Take us to a moment in your life when your relationship to money and finance changed? Hmm. I feel like there are two that come to mind. The first, more joyful than the second. So Mm. joyful moment was definitely paying off my student loans when I was 27. So I went to a private university that I had always been told, you know, you go to the best school you get into, even if you have to take out, you know, tens and tens of thousands of dollars of loans in order to be able to do it. If I could go back and make a different choice now, knowing what I know now that my 17, 18 year old self did not know, I definitely would make a different choice. But so I went to that school and, you know, graduated with about $50,000 of debt and took me six years to pay it off which was faster than I thought originally that I was going to be able to. When I made the final payoff, it was a couple days before Christmas. I remember my parents lived in Arizona at the time, and I was sitting on my mom's bed with my laptop open, and I checked, and my student loan balance was about $9,300 left. And I had, over the years, also built up a like just under $10,000 emergency fund. That was my, you know, my safety money, my, the only savings that I had in the world, right? I hadn't had any kind of a job that had a 401k or anything like that. And I wanted to be free of the debt so badly that I just said, you know what? I'm going to take all of this money out of my emergency fund and I'm going to pay off the debt, even though I knew that that wasn't probably like 
I don't know, the most advisable. I'm sure there were there would have been financial experts that would have told me not to do that. But sometimes the emotional side of money is even more powerful than the <laughs> rational side of money. And when I I paid off the whole thing and when it you know showed that zero balance afterwards, it was the most blissful money day of my life. So I can only imagine. Oh, yeah, I would have done the same thing. 100%, whether or not it's advised. Yeah, it, it just got to the point where, like I said, I had never really thought about the consequences of being in debt before and how much that would really weigh on me, especially as someone who has pretty much had a non-traditional career path, like my whole mm -hmm. career, which when I took out the loans to begin with, I didn't know that that was going to be the case. I was still very much a rule-following good girl and mm -hmm. thought that I would be, okay, I go to this university and then I get this corporate job and I wound up not doing any of those things. And yeah, it just, it, it felt really good to, to pay it off. And in paying it off, I made what felt like a strong commitment to myself to, if at all possible, not be in debt ever again. And obviously sometimes that's outside of your control, but yeah. for me, that felt like my kind of like line in the sand. I am, I am never going to have this kind of anxiety again. I, when people ask about financial regrets, this is definitely the one that comes up for me. And also knowing all the information that I knew and all the things that I had been taught up to that point at that age, I don't know that I would have made a different choice. You know, if I yeah. could go back and talk to my younger self, I don't think she would have listened. It yeah. seemed like the most responsible choice, the best thing, the thing that I was supposed to do. And so, yeah, after that, it just became like, this was my top priority was paying this yeah. down. And, you know, that meant living in like as, inexpensive situations as possible, right? Like renting tiny rooms and really not buying things. Not Obviously, that's not true completely, but the number one priority was to, you know, just pay off his money. Mm. And do you feel like you had to pull in some new skills and support for yourself or did was that determination and that thriftiness kind of already there in you? I think it was already there. And that ties into, you know, when you asked about pivotal money moments, I said that was the joyful one. And then mm. I feel like the less joyful one, when I was 14, my parents filed for bankruptcy and had a mm. huge change in, you know, finances, in, you know, socioeconomic class. Like the, it was a really big upheaval in our family yeah. that they didn't really communicate with me about, I think under the guise of you're 14, we're protecting you, you know, that type of thing. But there really wasn't open and honest communication about it. And so I was left in this very scarcity mindset and a belief that, you know, I hadn't until my like early 30s really started to unpack was don't have expensive tastes, don't have uh, a lot of money or a lot of kind of I don't know, like rich interests, because if that gets taken away, then you're going to wind up being miserable, which was definitely what happened with my parents. You know, they were really never the same after that happened. And so that for me was definitely like, okay, keep your needs and desires small. Don't spend a lot of money. Be really cool with having you know, the least expensive option, um, take the most inconvenient flight time because it's, you know, $100 cheaper, that type of thing. So I think that paying off the debt and that experience were really linked together for me. Mm. That's so interesting about just, I'm thinking about the disconnect of the experience of having had money in that experience and then sort of this sudden transition and how, how being forced to change our lifestyle 
I went through something that feels at least parallel, if not similar, in the sense that when I was growing up, I had a very sort of rich cultural life. We didn't go on a lot of vacations, didn't have a lot of fancy stuff, but I went to a really nice private school because my parents taught there and we lived on the school grounds. Like that's how they afforded it. Like there wasn't ever a huge amount of income and there was a lot of challenge around money, let's put it that way. But I was afforded a lifestyle equivalent to a much, much higher income. And something I had to learn sort of throughout my 20s when I wasn't being just supported by either a university or I lived in an intentional community for a couple of years as well, where again, I had like rich cultural life, but no, no financial equivalence in terms of me making money that led to this cultural experience. And so in my 30s, I really had to go through this process of learning. And maybe this is a sum of what was missing for your parents in the sense of sort of relearning what it is to have enough and to live a good life and to enjoy your life and to appreciate what's there, which can all sound a bit twee, you know, it can all be a bit like forced gratitude, which of course I know you know isn't what I mean, but just this experience of maybe decoupling from things in life which are typically provided by a lot of extra money and realizing yeah. Where is your sense of satisfaction and enoughness come from? Yeah. I mean, absolutely. And for my parents, and I, I mean, I guess everything I'm saying is from my perspective, right? There's only so yeah. much I can speak for them and of everything course. is filtered through like, you know, 14 year old memories at that point or a 14, a 14 year old's memory. But it really seemed to me that a lot of their identity was built around what their money afforded them. So flying first class, um, we lived in Europe for a while. Um, so being able to do a lot of travel, staying at really nice hotels when we traveled, you know, my mom was very much let's go shopping and really cares what she looks like. And, yeah. and there's certainly not anything wrong with that. I'm not trying to paint that in a bad light, but in a, in an expensive way. Yeah. And so, you know, going out to really nice dinners and not really cooking at home very much. And so all of those things that, seemingly to me almost overnight were no longer part of our life. It felt like the money went away and their joy and sense of identity went away with it. And I I don't even know that I was really consciously processing that, but what I took from it and sort of the unpacking and unlearning that I've had to do is, oh, the way to stay safe is to just have really, 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 really small needs right? Like, Mm -hmm. oh, it's fine. I don't need a bed. I can sleep on an air mattress on the floor, which I did for years. And that's true. I can, of course, sleep on an air mattress on the floor. But that doesn't mean that I have to. And it's been Mm -hmm. a real process for me to allow myself to thrive and not just survive, I guess. And yeah, it's, it's been interesting. The emotional experience of that whiplash of like changing from upper middle class to, I guess, you know, what would be considered more a working class than them, you know, filing for bankruptcy, having very little context on that. And then that class switch is something that's happened uh, a couple times throughout my life. It happened again when I got married because, you know, so I graduated college, paid off this debt, worked really non-traditional jobs, but always 100% paid for myself, always valued the autonomy of either seasonal employment or self-employment more than a lot of the kind of financial benefits that come with more traditional year-round work, right? So I was making those choices, but always totally paid for myself and, you know, was starting to save money and wasn't in debt and felt really great about my choices and then married someone who was working a much more 
like traditional corporate job, you know, making five or six times the amount of money that I was making. And that, again, like overnight, since Mm. we were sharing our finances was, oh, okay. And, you know, we bought this lovely house. And for me, it was, and this was all my stuff, you know, not his stuff, but to really have to bump up against, I wouldn't have been able to buy this house on my own. Is this really my house? I never really wanted homeownership. It wasn't, Mm. it's not something that I valued, right? And so sort of that compromise when you're sharing a financial life with someone else and that quick class change. And then in 2019, early 2019, we got divorced. And so then it was the quick class change in the other direction. And so I feel like if I look more like zoomed out at my personal financial life, it has been these periods of rapid, I guess what I would call class change. Mm. And that sort of sense of like not really belonging, like feeling a sense of belonging Mm -hmm. in any of the circumstances fully. And Mm. I don't really know what to make of that, but it's true. So I share it. (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm curious now you've had a couple years since your divorce and you share very openly about your financial life, your business financial life and details about your life. So I know enough to know that you are doing well in your business. I'm sure there's room for growth and you want to be doing more. And I'd like to talk about that. But I'm curious if given where you are now, whatever my assumptions are, how are you experiencing scarcity coming up now, if at all? Do you feel like you've worked through it or does it still creep in? And if so, when? I would be surprised to meet someone who feels like they have 100% worked through it and it never comes up. Fair right? enough. Um, I mean, listen, send me that person and have them teach me everything they know, right? If that person well, is listening. Um, maybe they have a government job. I don't know. Yeah. But it's, well, I mean, and then look at the last year, right? And this mm-hmm. is when I had an interesting conversation with my mom about mm, six months into the pandemic because, I mean, she full scale does not understand what I do, right? She's like, oh, oh. Nicole does something on the internet, right? Like oh. she's in her 70s. She doesn't really understand what podcasting is. She doesn't really get that like people pay me to do stuff on the internet. Um, And she has always been quite fearful that I'm not going to be okay financially Mm. because it's not something that she understands. Right. Mm. Um, I have two half brothers who are quite a bit older and one's a physical therapist and one's a very successful Mm. lawyer. And like, she gets those things, right. She understands those things. And yet, you know, in the, in like the pandemic, we had an interesting conversation where she was like, oh, because you work online, all of these industries that I would have thought, or, you know, that she said that she would have thought were, I mean, not completely secure, not foolproof, but almost that she would have thought, you know, it's never going to be a case that you're not going to be able to work in a restaurant or, you know, some of these things. And then to see, oh, okay, security isn't a real thing. Like it's not a guaranteed thing. And I just got lucky, right. That I was able to still have a job over the last year. So that's not an answer to your question, but the scarcity thing for me feels like the many layered, never ending onion. So you peel back one layer. Okay. That's what's here. You work on that. You sort of heal from it a little bit. Oh, cute. There's another layer, right? (laughs) So yeah, I'm, I'm definitely still always working through it. I Mm. think it tends to come up for me. It tends to come up for me in a couple different situations. First of all, I can get, as I think we all can, a little bit comparison-y with what Mm -hmm. other people are doing. And that's particularly the case since in my 
like close peer group, I'm definitely the one that's making the, the most non-traditional life and career choices. And so particularly using the pandemic as an example, you know, choosing to live full-time in a tiny van and be unhoused is adventurous until there's a pandemic and it's actually quite scary. And so looking around at all of my, I'll put up air quotes, like more successful friends Mm -hmm. who they have their houses, they have their 401k, they have their corporate health insurance, that type of stuff for me to think, oh, did I make the wrong choices? Sometimes that can be a place of scarcity for me. Mm -hmm. And it's really requires me to take the deep breath, like let it be okay that I feel that way, right? Like those fears and those comparisons are really normal. And it's like to be gentle and and kind with that. And then to really do the reflection around why did I make these choices in the first place? Mm-hmm. Do they still feel aligned? I'm allowed to change my mind. So am I saying that I would like to change my mind, right? And just kind mm-hmm. of that usually helps me to remember, oh yeah, I made these choices for this reason. I think the scarcity tends to come up there. And then it also tends to come up because I'm a solo self-employed person who everything that I earn money for comes like directly out of my creative brain, I guess I would say, when I am feeling either like chronic illness-wise or mental health-wise in a period where I'm not able to produce at the level that maybe I produce other times, I start to get afraid because Mm -hmm. I start to think, oh, if I take too much time off, then I'm not going to have enough money. And so that, that will come up for me. And that's something that, I mean, to be completely honest, I'm still really working through and thinking through what does it look like to have like a sustainable, cyclical, very human business, especially when you're the only person doing it. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so I don't necessarily have answers to those things, but I'm interested in them personally. And then I'm interested in talking about them publicly and with my community and with the people who pay for my work. And I'm certainly not the only person who is struggling to figure out how to make things sustainable. For sure. Absolutely. That was a very long answer to your question. No, no. I feel like you really got to the heart of it. And those of us who are solo self-employed in particular, this just comes up. Like there's just no way that it couldn't, I think. And So I think, yeah, I think the question is how are we gentle with ourselves and how do we take care of ourselves? Because it's just going to come up. Yeah, Yeah. it's just going to come up. And, you know, it came up for me actually quite strongly in January of this year based on basically nothing. Nothing really happened. I think it was just a product of the fact that I'm currently living with my partner's father in his house, which is wonderful because it's safe and rent-free and it's really, is really great. But I don't know anyone in this town other than mm-hmm. my partner and his father. I haven't interacted with anyone other outside of like the grocery store other than the two of them in six months now, which yeah. for my like very extroverted, very social, it does not, does not work for me. And so literally the only thing I've been doing is working. And yeah. Our brains, my brain, I should say, really likes to solve problems. And so, you know, oh, it's January. It's a new year. What are my income goals for the year? What is that going to look like? And I kind of got into this place of scarcity, honestly, because I had like nothing else to think about. But I was obsessing about, I was like creating fake problems for myself. And Mm. I work with a wonderful business coach and we had a whole session about this. And one of the things that they helped me to identify is, oh, I'm not in crisis at all. Like I am 
earning the amount of money that I need for my current lifestyle. I have an emergency fund. I have other savings. Like I'm not in crisis. And then I made the decision personally, and this is kind of silly, but to treat February as what I called a gratitude palooza month where I was like, what can (laughs) I do? Like what levers can I pull? Cause it's, I'm not in crisis. It's not an actual money issue. It's a mindset issue. And so, you know, I was making the five item gratitude list every day, like all the things that I sometimes will roll, roll my eyes at, but they work. Like what you put your attention on, it does work. And I also put myself through some journaling exercises around like very specifically defining like what makes me feel wealthy. Like what is wealth? And this is a really small, like maybe silly example, but I love making homemade pesto. It's something I've Mm. always really enjoyed and I enjoy eating it and I enjoy making it. And for years I would make it with walnuts or cashews or something instead because pine nuts are really quite expensive. Madly expensive. Really so expensive. And in February, I bought pine nuts because I 100% have enough money to buy pine nuts, right? I just (laughs) kind of got conditioned to these are too expensive for you. These aren't for you. These are for other people. And I bought the pine nuts and I, you know, I got in line at the grocery store and I was like, oh yeah, I feel, I feel wealthy right now doing this. Mm -hmm. And I really reflected on, there's just one example, but the things, there are many things that make me feel wealthy that actually don't require a six figure income, sort of like what you were saying before about some of your upbringing. Yeah. And maybe pine nuts is like the, the silly example, but it was, no, no, it was no. it was useful for me to spend that month really focusing on gratitude and then also focusing on generosity. I find that the more that I'm able to give, and not just financially, but making time in my schedule every single day to do something generous, whether mm-hmm. that was connecting to people who like I thought could have a friendship or a cool like co- creative collaboration or actually sitting down and leaving Apple podcast reviews for the shows that I've been listening to, right? Just like that type yeah. of stuff. And and it helped. I'm feeling significantly better. So that's amazing. Yeah. I wanted to touch back on this question of navigating both mental and physical health challenges. When you work for yourself, I'm I share some of those experiences and have been trying to find my relationship to this new business that I'm growing in my massage practice. There is it's interesting for physical health. It's a real challenge because when I'm physically unwell, I pretty much cannot work. Mental health is a little different. And in fact, doing massage can help my mental health. But I'm interested if those considerations have factored into how you've structured your business. And having said that, I wonder if you could take us on a small journey of what your business looked like, you know, maybe five years ago and what it looks like now and what that trajectory has been like? Yeah, that is quite a big question. When you say what it looked like five years ago, what what do you mean specifically? Do you mean like the way that I worked, the things that I was offering? What in particular are you most curious about? That is a good question. Yeah. What were your offerings? And if there are things that are a big deal that you have let go of in your business over the course of the last few years that you no longer do. Maybe you could highlight some of those and yeah, something around income generation, I guess. So I guess I will go back even further than that. Maybe I will just start sharing things. And if there's anything you want to dig into deeper, you can let me know. (laughs) So I started a personal blog in July of 2007. I've always loved writing, personal story sharing, kind of honest story sharing in real time has always been something that's really fulfilling for me, not just 
processing through writing, which is a huge part of my just like general well-being, but then also being able to have conversations and form relationships with people for whom that writing is resonant. And that's something that's right always been true. So 2007, I mean, it's basically my entire adult life that I have been like writing and sharing personal stories on the internet in some capacity. I never in my wildest thoughts you know, conceived that it would somehow turn into a job. It was just something that I did on the side while I was working other random jobs. I was the director of a children's day camp for five years. I worked retail. I was the manager of a cookie store. Like it, you name it, my career has been, you know, very, very twisty, turny, windy things. But I was blogging on the side. And it started to get a little bit more popular. I had built what felt like a really nice community. I organized an event for five years called Bloggers in Sin City that was basically like a big VIP, like drunken party in Vegas for other people who had personal blogs. Uh, <laughs> and so that was my first experience of like charging money. I mean, I made basically no money on it, but charging money for something that I organized for people on the internet. But again, it was just fun. It was a side yeah. thing that I was doing. And I had been a very public party girl. So I was the one who was like organizing the let's go to this tequila tasting or this cocktail thing or again, like a boozy weekend in Vegas. And that was obviously not the only thing that people knew me as, but it was definitely something that people knew me as. And a month before I turned 26, I quit drinking out of the blue as far as everybody else was concerned and sort of maybe even out of the blue as far as I was concerned. That again could be its whole other like sub podcast, (laughs) but I quit drinking and it was interesting to be writing my way through that because I had, you know, formed this identity, this, I guess, brand for lack of a better phrase, not that I really considered myself that, but when you're sharing online, people do put you into some kind of a box. And now all of a sudden I was changing boxes and I quit drinking and started running on the same day after having Mm. never been an athlete, never done anything even remotely athletic in my whole life. Like, how do I skip gym class? How do I cheat on this like mile that we have to run? And, um, I could barely, barely run And by run, I mean jog very slowly, two consecutive minutes at a time when I first started. And I quit drinking and started running on the same day. And running was really my like way to get sober. It was my way out of the hole. And I started writing about these things. And it was interesting in the, I would say, six months that followed, people were really, really curious because Mm -hmm. these people who for years had seen me being one way, it was like a very kind of voyeuristic real-time look at how do you change your life or how has one person changed their life? And the things that I was doing maybe weren't the exact changes that other people wanted to make, but I think most of us have something that either we want to change or we want to grow and watching other people do it can sometimes give us a little bit more confidence, especially if they're really honest about the challenges, you know, of it. And so I started getting questions, you know, how are you doing this? You know, do you have advice for me? And then I started getting more questions and more of the same questions. And I thought, huh, there's potentially something here. And so I wound up partnering with my running coach at the time and creating a beginner's half marathon, basically like a couch to half marathon program. It was a six-month program that really focused, like he handled kind of the training side of it. And I handled really the emotional, what happens when you do something you've never done before, right? And like, I have always loved um, being the person who brings other people together into a space or a community where they can connect with each other and hopefully like have a good time that feels authentic. And that, I mean, I'd say that's still like a through line of my work. 
And I loved it. It was great. And I made a bunch of dietary changes at the same time. So I wound up kind of creating some offshoot programs for that. And I was working on this part-time. I still, you know, had a, a full-time job, which was also a version of self-employment. Um, but anyway, I was, yeah, so I was doing this part-time and eventually went full-time with it. And what happened, and this was sort of a, I guess, fork in the road moment in my business story, about four years into running, so it was right around my four-year anniversary. I was in great physical health, really high fitness, and was miserable. I mm-hmm. was hating running. I just didn't want to do it. And I realized that I was afraid that if I stopped running, I would start drinking again. And it no longer felt like something I was choosing to do. It felt like something that I was forcing myself to do. Yeah, And that didn't feel good. And so I said, you know, I think I'm going to take a couple weeks off from running. A couple weeks. Wound up being months and months and months. And <laughs> um, I, you know, basically haven't really run seriously since then. <laughs> um, but as I was taking time off and sort of thinking about, wow, running was a really great tool to get me from point A to point B, right? From like mm. drinking to sober. And when I stopped running and realized, oh, I'm a lot more solid in my sobriety than I thought. And I'm ready to do a lot of the deeper work of why was I drinking so much in the first place and things that I wasn't able to face when mm. I was first getting sober. And I realized that I didn't want to keep talking about running anymore. Mm. I didn't really have the passion for it. And I, you know, I had the knowledge, I had the experience, the program was popular, it was profitable. I certainly could have kept doing it, but I am what I self-describe as a light switch person. I'm either very obsessed with something or I'm not interested at all. I have very few lukewarm interests, which (laughs) won't surprise anybody to hear who knows me, but I just, my tolerance for faking it or like making it work is really low, which I think both serves me well and can be like a hindrance for sure. Mm -hmm. And so I was faced with, I have built a business, like an entire business around my hobbies and my lifestyle. And I've caged myself in because it's become a thing where if I change the way I'm eating or if I change what, you know, whether I'm running or not, then, uh uh-oh, I don't have a business anymore. And so this was in 2015. And I was married at the time. And like I said, he earned quite a bit more money than me. And I was really having a business identity crisis Mm. and really wanted to take a little bit of time off. And I was having some like mental health flare-ups, like some like real depressive flare-ups that were probably not unrelated to this, oh God, what am I going to do with my life? (laughs) And so I decided to take some time off. I was in the position where because he made enough money that that was possible, I was able to do that without going back and finding a job because I had been full-time, you know, with my own business at that point. And I'm incredibly grateful that I had the opportunity to do that. And in doing that, I realized that whatever I did next even though personal story sharing and like me as a person is always going to be part of the work, that it needs to be a container and an umbrella that's large enough that I'm allowed to change, you know, my activities and my relationships and my geography and like my interests. And I'm allowed to continue to grow and experiment without meaning that I, you know, it affects my livelihood, if that makes sense. And that's when I started Real Talk Radio was on like the heels of that break was I had been thinking about podcasting for a while and doing some other things in that like space. Mm. And I decided to create a show that was not topic specific, where, Mm. you know, really the point of the show was honest conversations with a huge range of people about their real lives. And that for me felt broad enough that, you know, during 
sure, I'm really into long distance hiking. So I have interviewed a bunch of long distance hikers. But if at any point I stop doing that, it's not going to change whether or not I can have this business. Mm -hmm. So that was, I would say, the most significant learning lesson for me in self-employment was, which was sort of the opposite of a lot of what I had heard in the early how to start a business online days. It was very like monetize your passion and figure it out and then it won't feel like work. And so I went down that path and realized, oh, that's not for me. And so mostly all of the decisions that I have made since then, and particularly in the current iteration of my business, are based around, I need a business that is like humane and like treats me like a person and not a robot. And that allows me to experiment with new things and also to change and to let go of things when it's time. Mm. Tell us a bit about what your business looks like now. And again, maybe share some of the offerings and maybe some of the structure that you've put in place that does afford you freedom even year to year. So currently right now, and this could very well change in a couple of months, I have gotten in the habit of planning my life and my business quarterly. I find mm -hmm. that any longer than that, it's all just like guesswork. And I have definitely been the person who in January commits to something in October that once October comes around, I'm like, oh God, I don't want to do that. Whether mm -hmm. it's a trip that I booked or something that I said I was going to do for work, that to me is not flexible enough. Whereas I find a three-month time span to be something that works very, very well for me. So you and I are having, you know, at the time of this recording, I don't know when it's going to come out, nearing the end of March. So mm. I'm essentially wrapping up all of my Q1 commitments. And then mm. who knows, right? Like next quarter will be something different. And the quarter after that will be something different. But, you know, right now, currently, I host a podcast called Real Talk Radio that is 100% listener funded. So no ads or sponsors. It's funded by my Patreon community, which you of are. Which I'm one. Of which you are one. You are it's one such of such an amazing community. Thank you. Thank you. And you have been one of the most amazing recent additions. So I'm very mm. glad that we were able to connect through that and now through this as well. And so I have a Patreon community that operates on a sliding scale funding model, which was uh, a change that I made. Mm, about six or seven months ago. So that's relatively new, which, you know, we can talk about if you want. And that Patreon community funds a bunch of different aspects of my work. So um, the podcast, like I mentioned, and then I have a newsletter, newsletter blog, I guess, thing where I do weekly personal essays and weekly um, community discussion threads. One of the most interesting recent ones, I posed the question of how much money is enough for you. Mm -hmm. And reading through all people's like really honest, in-depth answers, yours included, was yeah. fascinating, right? So it's a really good community of people. But both the podcast and that writing and discussion threads, they're freely available. So it's an interesting business model where people are paying to fund something that they, in theory, can get for free, which I think is pretty cool. And then there's a bunch of stuff that I do that's, you know, Patreon only. There's a monthly audio series that's Patreon only. I do a monthly business and money report that's a very transparent, like detailed breakdown of a lot of the stuff you and I are talking about. Yeah. Uh, how much money I made that month, where it came from, what the expenses were, lessons learned, what I'm thinking about in the business, all of that kind of stuff, which seems to be really popular. I host an end of month like live journaling and reflection circle. So there's a bunch of different ways that depending upon how invested someone wants to be in the community. And I don't mean that money-wise. I mean that time-wise, right? There's, I think, as of this morning, 440-ish people in the community, but 10%, 15%, I'd say, are really active, right? Mm -hmm. So they come they come to all the live things. They do, you know, whereas a lot of the other folks, it's more passive support because they want to support the creation of the work. And that's great. Mm. So that's the Patreon community and the things that it funds. And then I also do 
some other offerings. This quarter, I hosted something called the Get Shit Done Club, which was, it's basically just twice a week co-working that that has been like the delight of Q1 for me. It's been <laughs> so fun to co-work with people, you know, like a couple of times a week. And yeah. I have yeah, mastermind groups that I'll host once or twice a year for people who really want the like day-to-day small group, eight-person kind of accountability mm-hmm. friendship type of stuff. So it's different. I would say, and you know, I, I release quarterly reflection workbooks and all of these things, what they have in common, I think, is people who are interested in honest conversations of all kinds. So mm-hmm. listening to two other people have honest conversations on a podcast, meeting people in a community with whom they can have honest conversations, or, you know, I do live events and retreats and that type of stuff. Um, and the honest conversations that we have with ourselves through journaling prompts, through reflections, through some of this type of stuff. And yeah, so it's not a topic-specific community. It's not like everyone is self-employed or everyone is married or single or a mom or, you know, there's, there's no real, um, I guess like demographic thing in common. I think what brings people together in the community is just, yeah, that hunger for reflection and honest conversations. Mm. What did it look like as you were building up the Patreon community? What do you mean? How much? So, well, let's start here. How long did it take to build up to 400 plus patrons? I've actually been around the same number of patrons because people leave, right? People come, people leave for quite a long time. It is definitely a slow growing situation, Uh particularly because you're essentially not having to convince people, but like my business model is basically built on like convincing people to pay for something that they could get for free, right? So they Mm -hmm. really have to be aligned with the mission of paying all the podcast guests, you know, Mm -hmm. having transcripts made for every episode, like all the different things that go into the way that sort of my like ethics of my business are, Um, which luckily there are lots of folks, you know, who are, but let's see, I started the podcast in August of 2015 and definitely self-funded the first couple of seasons. Mm -hmm. I experimented with an ad partner for one season because it's good friends of mine um, who own a company called Picky Bars. It's like energy bars, granola, that type of stuff that I love them. And I I love their products. Like I Mm -hmm. actually do like use them, eat them all the time. And so that felt really fun and aligned to be able to partner with them. But I realized, oh, there's like maybe two companies that I feel that way about. And I don't, you know, so I guess I'm not going to do this. Okay. If I'm not going to do this and I'm pay. I want to eventually be able to pay my guests. I'm already paying a sound engineer. How is this going to make money? And uh, that's where Patreon came along. And again, being in a two-income marriage where this didn't have to make that much money right away was what enabled it to grow slowly. And I always like to talk about that because it's certainly not true that I couldn't have done this without having the financial support, you know, of my former spouse. But money has to come from somewhere. So- the money to start a new project either comes from our a full-time job or a part-time job, right? Some kind of income that you're earning elsewhere. It comes from the support of family, friends, or right, like a spouse. It comes from your savings or it comes from a credit card, right? Like there really aren't, there's only so many places that money can come from. And I'm always grateful when people are willing to be honest about in a like neutral, non-judgmental way, like what was true for them. Cause I think it's really easy to look at someone else's story and think like, what's wrong with me that I haven't been able to do what they've been able to do. But like, if you, unless you know the context of their situation, it's like an apples to oranges comparison. So at the beginning, it really didn't have to make my, you know, money that much money right away, which enabled me to grow it the way that I wanted to grow it, which I'm grateful for. And so I started using Patreon and people were joining and it was slow. I, I mean, this was like 2016. So I really don't remember what the numbers were at that time, but what happened was, 
as I got close to the end of 2016, I said, okay, I'm going to sit down and do some math. And at that point, I was re- releasing my podcast. It was I was creating a full eight-episode season and releasing all of the episodes at once, like four or five mm. times a year. It was like a little bit mm. of a different release model. And I said, okay, how much does it cost to make a season? And at that point, I wasn't up to p- paying my guests yet, but paying a sound engineer, right? Like paying hosting, all of that, and wanting to get paid myself. And how much do I need to make from Patreon after all of the fees and stuff in order for this to be like minimum level sustainable? Mm-hmm. And Patreon has a thing where you can set up like funding goals essentially. And mm-hmm. so I set up a funding goal of, hey, this is what it's going to take to keep the show going. If we meet this funding goal by whatever it was, December 15th or December 18th or whatever, then I'm going to keep doing the show. If not, I'll wrap it up and I'll do something else. And that was a really pivotal moment for me because first it required emotionally getting to the point that I was willing to walk away if I didn't meet the funding goal because I couldn't say something like that if I didn't mean it. Mm-hmm. And luckily, you know, it's however many years later. So I did meet the funding goal, but there was a big uptick in people joining the community once they were faced with, oh, I like this thing. Hmm. It costs money to make this thing. I want to put my money, you know, like where my values are. And it was it part of the reason also that I wanted to bring that conversation forward was just to to really, yeah, like talk more deeply about money and creative work, right? Like yeah. I wouldn't walk into the gap and just take a sweater, but I expect incredibly high quality YouTube podcast writing and stuff to just be free. When, of course, it's not free, right? Our attention is being sold through ads and uh, there's, you know, monetization models and stuff there. But yeah, I just wanted to have that conversation with my community of like, it costs money to make this stuff. Like, do we value this or not? And like, if not, I would have done something else. And I felt mm-hmm. like very much like I was willing to walk away. And But we met the funding goal and then it kind of kept growing from there. And then as I started to expand out um, very early 2019, I hosted my first um, like multi-day in-person retreat. And that also really changed my business. I wound up hosting six retreats in 2019, which is mm. too many. Like, that was that was wild. <laughs> um, but also that sort of came from a place of scarcity because I knew that I was getting divorced. And I'm like, let me get these things on the calendar so I at least know that there's going to be money coming yeah. in. And because after I got divorced, I, mo- I built out and moved into a small van and I was kind of high on the like mobile living freedom of I can host retreats anywhere because I can just drive everywhere. Right. It was like adventurous (laughs) eyes are bigger than the stomach plus Mm -hmm. financial scarcity. And um, (laughs) yeah, things have just continued to grow. I will, you know, phase out certain offerings. You know, we used to have a book club with Patreon that we don't anymore. And Mm -hmm. I like, like I said, I like experimenting. And so when something doesn't feel like it's really serving me and serving the community, I would much rather let it go and try something else. Yeah. Mm. So do you, did your biz and money report, did that grow out of this place of kind of information sharing around money and really being open with your listeners about like, Hey, this is the bucks that it takes to bring you this thing. Was that a progression? I think so. I'd have to go back and look at when I first started doing those, but I have always been interested in talking honestly about money. And I think that very much stems from the anger that I had that I felt like my parents didn't speak to me honestly about money. And also yeah. they didn't speak to each other honestly about money because my mom had no idea that they were about to have to file for bankruptcy, right? So the yeah. the secrecy around money caused so much pain in my life. And it, it was it was the loss of money, but it was more the dishonesty around money that I saw as the root problem. And so I felt really committed to why don't we just talk about this? Like money is one of the few things that literally impacts every single one of us 
in huge ways constantly daily. And yet it's too taboo to talk about. No, like I don't accept that. And I think especially like my, if I think about my values, it's pretty, I mean, I don't even know if radical is the right word, but like it is radical to be honest about money, right? It's very anti-capitalist to be honest about money. And like, those things are important to me Mm -hmm. and financial literacy, financial education, the work that you do, like I, I believe in all of this so much. And I don't think that it needs to be taboo and having the full context, I think is really generous. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of what interests me about self-employment, particularly this kind of like solo self-employment, I love the work that I do. Yes. And the things that I create, but honestly, I would say on par with that, I love the fact that the business model itself can be a way to enact like your values or the world that you want to see on like a tiny, tiny microcosm scale. And obviously, you know, sometimes we can't have all of our values be met if the money isn't there to do it, right? I'm not trying to paint this like super idealist picture. And it took me many years to get to the point where I'm at now. And I'm certainly not doing everything perfectly now. But I really like the idea that the business itself can be a generator of conversations. And so if I Mm -hmm. believe in honesty about money, cool, I can have guests on my podcast where we talk about it, but also I can publish all of my like detailed business, like and money information for the community as well. And so I like Mm -hmm. to think, how can I push myself to be a little bit more just like radical in the way that I'm approaching the structure of the business? Yeah, totally. One thing that's been especially interesting for me in reading your monthly finance reports, and also we recently had a guest who came on and spoke about Profit First. She's a Profit First professional. I'm interested in how you ended up working with the Profit First model in terms of managing your money in your business and what led you to that model in particular? So I have always really enjoyed budgeting. Again, I think all of this came out of that like very formative 14-year-old like scarcity place of, okay, I'm going to know where all of my money is going. And I'm someone who for, you know, as creative as I am, like, let me make a spreadsheet. Like I am here for that. My partner, my partner will joke about for my personal budget, I use YNAB, right? You need Uh a budget. And if I'm like anxious or feeling stressed, he's like, babe, why don't you update your budget? Like that'll make (laughs) you feel good, right? So like, that's who I am as a person. I love that. (laughs) And so like, I was sort of doing my own version of profit first. I just didn't really know that that was the case, right? The money would come in and I knew, okay, here's all the business expenses. And like I said, I love long distance hiking and, you know, during non-pandemic times would like to spend like two to four months a year doing that, which means not working during those months, which means the other months that I'm working, my like year long business expenses have to be divided by like eight months or nine months or whatever it is. And so I always had that really tracked and, you know, wanting to contribute to an IRA and all of that type of stuff and having to like self-fund my own health insurance and and everything. So I didn't come to to profit first because I wasn't making profit, which I know Mm -hmm. like a lot of the stories in the book, they they kind of do talk about that. That wasn't my experience at all. My best friend recommended it to me and I trust her. And she was like, oh, this is, you know, what I use. And so I read it and like anything else, I thought some of it applied to me and some of it didn't, but I liked that it was set percentages. Yeah because it takes a lot of the sort of guesswork out of like, well, how much do I really need to transfer from account to account? And then I really liked, I'm not going to really go into too much detail about it because you said you did a whole episode on it, but I like the idea of like the profit account that you set Mm -hmm. up where, you know, it's a tiny amount that goes in. And then on the first of every quarter, your business pays you a bonus that you're supposed to use, supposed to use, but for fun, right? Like for something that just feels like really like a treat. And the thing that I like about it is it's still all my money. Like it's, 
I would have gotten a little more in salary, right? If it wasn't going in the profit account, but it's just that slightly different way of looking at it that it's like, oh, here's $200 that I wasn't, you know, have not earmarked for anything. And it feels really fun. So yeah, yeah I read the book in late fall of 2019. And nice. so started adopting the system for 2020. And it's working for you. You're not looking for anything else. You're like, this is the one. I mean, if something were to change, you know, but I don't know what would, I think it's yeah. a really, I think potentially the only thing that would change maybe would be the percentages at, yeah. at different times. But yeah. you know, my, yeah, right now the structure, it works really well for me. And like, I'm always someone who w- has had, let's say like an online savings account. Like I have, this isn't like a plug, but just, just for specifics, Capital One 360, they just have like, yeah. a, you know, those little same, I account. love them. Yeah. yeah. And I like that you can open as many of them as you want, like under your account. Like I've always been someone who likes to save in buckets, right? Like this is the travel fund. This is the tattoo fund. This is like, you know, the SEP IRA fund, whatever, mm-hmm. as opposed to just having one savings account. So I've done that personally for my entire, ever since I've, you know, been like, having money as an adult. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this me mimics that. Like, I think some people are maybe overwhelmed with like, oh my God, you need all these different bank accounts. And I'm like, no, this is great. (laughs) Like I'm very into the money in the different buckets. So that works well for me. Definitely. Right. I'm resuscitating my final question. Tell me what your favorite fruit is. My favorite fruit is probably honeydew melon. I love Mm. honeydew melon. However, I hate cutting it. So I just had like all these memories of when when I was a kid, you know, my mom would always cut up the melon. And then as an adult, I'm just like, oh my God, for some reason, I don't like cutting it. I don't like scooping it out. I don't like doing anything. And I would just (laughs) never do it. And so it would always be like a partner or a roommate or whatever, when they like wanted to do something nice for me, they would like buy and cut me a honeydew melon. And so my, my love language is buy me a ripe honeydew melon and cut it up and put it in the fridge so it's cold and juicy. And then I will eat it. Amazing. So that's part of your enoughness that may you always have someone in your life to cut up your honeydew melon. Yeah, that's that. I I accept that wish. Yes. (laughs) That's awesome. Okay. If people want to find out more about you and learn more from you, where can they do that? NicoleAntoinette.com is probably the easiest place just because it's, you know, the home base. It links to all the things and you can find me there. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you are here listening at the end of this episode, yay, you're still with me. I'm so glad you're here. I hope you'll subscribe if you're new to the podcast. And also consider taking a moment to leave a review, especially over at Apple Podcasts. There's a link to do so in the show notes. Podcast reviews make a huge difference in getting the word out about Creatives Do Money, and it means so much to me when you take the time to do so. Okay, special thanks to Michael P. Atkinson for mixing this episode and for composing its beautiful music. And lastly, until next time, wishing you all money, business, and life success, whatever that means to you.